0: Section Two of Antonia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Lisa Murphy, Richmond, Virginia. Antonia by George Sand. Translated by George Burnham Eaves. Section Two My fair client is a sincere and touching creature, he said to himself. She is right to accuse herself there is no human law which can force a yes from the mouth which is determined to say no she sinned like other women because she longed for glittering geegaws but she sadly admits it and in that she shows herself superior to most of her sisters it is not for me to console her i will confine myself to saving her if i can madam he said aloud after turning over these reflections in his mind you can augur better for your interest in the future than in the past. The present shows that Monsieur Le Marquis will not easily make up his mind to set you free, but that he will not make up his mind to abandon you in any event. The paltry assistance which he offers you is not to be the last, so I was given to understand, and I am certain of it. Wait a few months, allow his son's creditors to threaten you, and you will find that he will put his hand in his pocket again to prevent the sale of this house." "'Forget these worries. Do not think of moving. Trust to time and circumstances.' "'Very good, monsieur,' said the baroness, who was in haste to give her opinion and display her pride of rank. "'That is very excellent advice of yours. But, if I were in Madame la Comtesse's place, I would not follow it. I would flatly refuse these miserable little charities. Yes, indeed, I should blush to accept them.' "'I would go from this house with head erect and live in a convent, or, better still, I would go to some one of my friends, Baron d'Ancourt, for example, and I would say to the Marquis and Marchioness, "'Arrange matters to suit yourselves. I will let the house be sold. I have incurred no debts, and I do not worry about those left by Monsieur your son. Pay them with the tattered remnants of a fortune that he left me, and we will see whether you will put up with the public spectacle of my destitution.' Yes, my dear Julie, that is what I would do, and I promise you that the Marquis, who is very rich by his second marriage, would retract these infamous propositions he makes to-day. Does Madame la Comtesse d'Estrelles coincide with that opinion, said the solicitor, and am I to burn our bridges? No, replied the Countess. Tell me in two words of what my father-in-law's contribution consists, and, whatever it may be, I accept it. "'It consists,' replied Marcel Thierry, "'of a small farm in Beauvaisée, worth about twenty thousand francs, and a very old, but not badly dilapidated, pavilion, situated on your street at the end of the garden of your hotel.' "'Ah, that old pavilion of Rocheleuze-Day?' said the countess, indifferently. "'A mere hovel,' said the baroness. "'It is good for nothing but to pull down.' "'Possibly,' replied Marcel. "'But the land has some value.' AND, AS THE STREET IS BEING BUILT UP, YOU MIGHT FIND A PURCHASER FOR IT. AND ALLOW A HOUSE TO BE BUILT SO NEAR MY OWN, SAID JULIE, OVERLOOKING MY GARDEN, AND ALMOST OVERLOOKING MY APARTMENTS? NO, YOU WOULD REQUIRE THAT THE HOUSE SHOULD TURN ITS BACK TO YOU, AND TAKE THE AIR FROM THE STREET, OR FROM MY UNCLE'S GARDEN. WHO MIGHT YOUR UNCLE BE? QUERIED THE BARONESS, WITH AN INDESCRIBABLE TOUCH OF CONTEMPT IN HER TONE. Monsieur MARCEL TERRY, SAID THE COUNTESS is a near relative of my wealthy neighbor, Monsieur Antoine Terry, of whom you must certainly have heard. Oh, yes, a former tradesman. An armorer, rejoined Marcel. He made his fortune in the colonies without ever setting foot on a ship, and, thanks to shrewd planning and good luck, he made several millions in his chimney-corner, you might say. I congratulate him, replied the baroness. And he lives in this neighborhood? His house faces the new court but his garden is separated only by a wall from the Comtesse d'Estrelles, and the pavilion forms a sort of elbow between the two estates. Now my uncle might purchase the pavilion, either to straighten his own lines by destroying it, or to repair it and turn it into a greenhouse or gardener's lodge. So the wealthy Monsieur Terry has his eye on the pavilion, observed the Baroness, and perhaps he has commissioned you he has commissioned me to do nothing marcel interrupted in a firm tone he has no knowledge whatever of the affairs of my other clients then you are his solicitor also naturally madame le Baronne. but that will not prevent me from making him pay the highest possible price for whatever it may please madame la Comtesse to sell him and he will not take it ill of me he is too good a man of business not to know the value of a piece of real estate that he really wants but i have not decided to sell the property we are talking about said the countess emerging from a sort of vague reverie it does not annoy me at all it is occupied i am told by a most excellent person of quiet habits true madame said marcel but the rent is so small that it will increase your income very slightly however if you prefer to keep it it will be of use to you in that it represents a substantial security for the interest on your debts We will talk again about this, Monsieur Thierry. I will think it over, and you will advise me further. Tell me the total amount of the gift to be made to me. About thirty thousand francs. Should I express my thanks for it? If I were in your place, I would do nothing of the kind, cried the Baroness. Do so by all means, said the solicitor in an undertone. A word of amiable and modest resignation cost a heart like yours nothing at all. The countess wrote two lines and handed them to Marcel. "'Let us hope,' he said, as he rose to go, "'that the Marquis d'Estrelle will be touched by a gentleness. "'He is not a bad man,' replied Julie. "'But he is very old and feeble, "'and his second wife governs him completely. "'She is a genuine plague-spot, that ex-madame d'Orlan cried the baroness. "'Do not speak ill of her,' Madame Le Baron retorted Marcel.' She belongs to that society, and entertains those opinions which you certainly look upon as the law and the prophets. What is that, monsieur le Procure? She abhors the new ideas, and considers the privileges of birth the blessed arc of tradition. Do not insult me by comparing me to that woman, said the baroness. That her ideas are all right is very possible. But her actions are all wrong. She is miserly, and people say that she would even desert her opinions for money." oh in that case said marcel with an equivocal smile which madame de d'uncourt took for an act of homage i can understand that madame le Baronne must regard her with profound aversion he bowed and retired that man is not by any means ill-bred said the baroness who had observed the dignified and respectful ease of his exit his name is terry you say like his uncle's the rich man and like his other uncle much more favorably known, Thierry the Painter of Flowers. "'Ah, the painter! I almost knew the excellent Thierry. My husband used to receive him in the morning. Everybody received him at all hours, my dear love, at least all people of taste and intelligence, for he was a charming old man, extremely well-educated, and most agreeable in conversation. Baron Downcourt apparently lacks taste and intelligence, for he did not choose to have him to dinner.' I did not say that the baron lacks. Say it, say it, I don't care. I know more about it than you do. And, having delivered that double-edged retort, the baroness, who had a sovereign contempt for her husband's intellect, but forgave him in consideration of his eminent qualities in the matter of noble birth, indulged in a hearty and good-humoured peal of laughter. Let us return to these, Terry, she said. Do I understand that you were well acquainted with the artist?' No, I did not know him. You know that the Comte d'Estrelle fell sick immediately after our marriage, that I went with him to take the waters, and that, as a matter of fact, I have never received visitors at all. for he simply languished and languished until he died. That is why you have never seen society and know nothing about it. Poor dear, after sacrificing yourself for a brilliant life, you have known nothing except the duties due to a dying man, the crape of mourning, and the annoyances of business come you must leave all this behind you my dear julie you must marry again ah god forbid cried the countess you propose to live alone and bury yourself at your age impossible i cannot say that it is to my taste for i have no idea i have passed so entirely beside everything that goes to make up the life of young women marriage wealth and liberty that i am hardly acquainted with myself I know that I have consumed two years in N.Y. and melancholy, and thus far in my solitude, except for these money troubles, which are exceedingly distasteful to me, but which I do my best to endure without bitterness, I find myself in a more tolerable condition than in those through which I have previously passed. It may be that my character lacks energy, just as my mind lacks variety. Being driven to some occupation to kill time, I have taken a liking to quiet amusements. I read a great deal i draw a little i play on the piano i embroider i write occasional letters to my old friends at the convent i receive four or five people of a serious turn of mind but good-tempered and always the same so that i am habitually placid and free from excitement in a word i do not suffer and i am not bored and that's a good deal to one who has always suffered or yawned with n y hitherto so leave me as i am my friend come to see me as often as you can, without interfering with your pleasures. And do not worry about my lot, which is not so bad as it might be. All this will do very well for a while, my dear, and you act like a woman of spirit by meeting misfortune with a stout heart. But all things have their day, and you must not sacrifice too much of the age of beauty and the advantages which it procures. You are not, be it said without offence, of very exalted birth but your unfortunate marriage gave you a fine name and a title which placed you on a higher social level you are a widow which enables you to go about and be seen and known and you have no children so that you are still in all the bloom of your youth you have no fortune but as your dower overladen with debts as it is will be no great loss you can very well hold it cheap and renounce it for a more eligible suitor than the first if you choose to put yourself in my hands i will undertake to arrange the sort of marriage for you to which you have a perfect right to aspire the sort of marriage you surprise me explain yourself i mean to say that you are too fascinating not to be married for love very good but will it be someone whom i shall be able to love if the man instead of being a spendthrift and a fool is really rich and well-born for that is the most important of all and you cannot descend socially without blame if he has breeding tact and the instincts of a man of quality and lastly if he is an honourable man what more can you ask you must not expect that he will be in his first youth and built like the hero of a novel we see but few of those magnificent creatures who are disposed to select a person of great merit for her lovely eyes everybody is more or less hard up in these days I understand you, replied Madame d'Estrelle, with a sad smile. You wish me to marry some excellent old man, some friend of yours, for I do not believe that you would propose a monster to me. Thanks, my dear Baroness. I don't propose again to hire myself out to an invalid for large wages, for, to put things baldly, that is the sort of good fortune which you have in mind for me. But! although i should be capable of waiting upon and nursing a father if i had one with the utmost tenderness or even an old friend who needed me i am firmly resolved never again to put my neck in the yoke of an infirm and morose stranger i conscientiously fulfilled those depressing duties to monsieur Destrell, and every one gave me credit for it now i am free and i propose to remain free i have no relatives left only a few friends i desire nothing more and i ask you in all seriousness not to seek happiness from me according to your ideas which i do not share you my friend are still what i was at sixteen when i was married you have retained the illusions which were dinned in my ears you believe that one cannot do without wealth and show and therefore are younger than i so much the better for you since fate has bound you to a husband who denies you nothing That is all that you need, is it not? But I should be more exacting. I should like to love. You laugh? Ah, yes, I know your theories. The honeymoon is short, you have said to me a hundred times, but the golden moon is the light which never goes out. For my part, I am foolish enough to say to myself that on the first day of my married life I propose to love and believe, even though it last but a day. Otherwise I know by experience. Marriage is a shame and a martyrdom. If that is so, said the baroness, rising, I leave you to your reveries, my dear friend, and humbly beg pardon for interrupting them. End of section 2